Uh, today, our topic is fabulously flawed. Those are two words that I reckon most of the time we don't think go together. Many things are fabulous, but we don't tend to think of them as being things that are flawed. And things we think of as flawed, we don't tend to think of as being fabulous. But I believe it's all wrong because in the kingdom of God, what's upside down is sometimes right side up. And there's something fabulous about being flawed. And I'm going to prove that to you today. You may be skeptical. I see skeptical faces. I see frowns. I see confusion. So let's see if I can convince you this is the case as we finish our series on Haggai, looking at the last few verses of Haggai chapter two. I don't know how you feel about the idea of something being flawed. I don't want to buy something that's flawed. If something turns up from Amazon, I check it out. If it doesn't work, I send it back. I'm not going to keep the thing, am I? A lot of us in our jobs, as we manage people, and we get used to the idea that managing people can be tricky because people are flawed. Sometimes systems are flawed that we have to be part of. Uh, those of us who are educators soon understand, once we've had children in our class for more than an hour, perhaps or so, that some of our children have flaws, shall we say. Uh, those of us who are in the medical profession spend our days figuring out what is the flaw in someone's health and then trying to help them with it. We get very focused on it. Those of us in the computing world get uh, rather annoyed when we find somebody else has coded something in a flawed manner. There are lots of things that can get flawed. Our social media and our uh, television and the stuff online is often very focused on the flaws of other people. When's the last time you saw a tweet go viral that was all about how somebody was doing something nice? <laughs> you don't tend to see that. Our politicians, their flaws are shown to everybody. The, ce the, ce the celebrities and so-called celebrities, their flaws are what make people pay attention, sadly, more than perhaps the good things in their lives. And let's face it, you and I know, fundamentally, even though we may not show it to anybody else or, or tell anybody else or admit it to anybody else, you and I know that we, we're all flawed, aren't we? As much as the self-help books and the, and the positive thinking psychology will tell you, no, you're beautiful, you're wonderful. And we see those posts sometimes online and we read that and we think, that's a lovely sentiment, but it's just not really quite true. Yeah. I mean, it depends how you look at these things because we are, we're going to talk about this, we are beautiful in the sight of God and we should be beautiful in each other's sight on some level, but it doesn't mean that there's nothing quite wrong with us, right? We've all got our flaws. And children, and I see some preteens and teens here, as you grow older, you become more and more aware of the flaws in your parents. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. I'm just wondering whether I'm wondering whether the children might give me an amen. Uh, I'm not sure they dare though, sitting as they are next to their children, their parents. Uh, and parents, you know, we become, you know, when, when I, uh, my, my niece just had this, uh, her second child, little baby Freya. Uh, she, you know, I've seen the picture, you know, she's a beautiful little baby. You know, babies come out, they're gorgeous, they have no flaws. You know, it's all, all wonderful for a, a, a few hours. And, <laughs> but then as they grow, you know, we just, as we grow in life, it, it, do, it doesn't help us to ignore our flaws. It doesn't help us to pretend that we don't have flaws. We have to face them. And I believe that as we, as we face them front full on, 
and with our hearts engaged, that we can see a way in which our flaws can be fabulous, can be fabulous for us and for the people around us and for God. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Brene Brown, some of you may, this, may know her, she said this in her book, Daring Greatly. If we don't come to terms with our shame, our struggles, we start believing that there's something wrong with us, that we're bad, flawed, not good enough. And even worse, we start acting on those beliefs. And what I want to do is agree with that, but add something, which is that although we are flawed, we are not defined by our flaws, and God is able to do something with those flaws that is wonderful and indeed fabulous. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, someone's going to come and read us our scripture today. Who's reading today? You are, please. Would you, would you please come up and read for us? And we're at the end of chapter 2 of Haggai. We're in verses 20 to 23, and that is our text. This reading is from the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 20 to 23. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declared the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declared the Lord Almighty. Amen. Well done, well done. Zerubbabel and words like that, eh? That would trip up many of our somewhat older people, yeah? Excellent, thank you very much. Now you're going to say, well, what's this got to do with being flawed? It doesn't say anything about it. I shall explain, or at least do my best. And bearing in mind now that we're finishing our series on Haggai, and just to remind us, in case you weren't aware, the book of Haggai is written uh, to get the help, inspire the people of God to do what they were meant to do. They were in exile. They've been brought back from exile to Jerusalem. They were brought back to rebuild what? The temple. And what have they been doing for the last 15 years? Building their own houses, neglecting the temple, doing nothing at all for that. And they are putting roofs on their houses and there's no roof on the house of God. They have been neglecting the very thing that God brought them back to do. And so Haggai comes along and he says, uh, hey, is this the right time to be putting, you know, do that? What about God's temple? And he points out that God has been trying to get their attention. How has God been trying to get their attention? You remember? What some of the ways? One of the ways? How's God been trying to get their attention? Harvest, as in crops, harvest, as in lack of. Yes. God has said, I'm going to, you know, let me get your attention. Anyway, they eventually, they start to rebuild. And uh, Haggai inspires them, continues. And then this is the last bit at the very end, which is an, in some ways a bit odd. The last three verses of the whole book is focused on this chap, Zerubbabel. Why is it focused on Zerubbabel, and what is the point going on here? Well, we're going to talk about three things today from this section about being flawed, about how fabulous it is, because what we're looking at is somebody who would have had good reason to believe that God could not use him. And maybe sometimes you feel like that. God can use a person sitting next to you, or the person in front or behind, but God using you might be a little difficult to believe when you consider your flaws. And I think what Haggai is doing here, he is confronting Zerubbabel with his flaws that I will explain in a moment and helping him believe that he has a plan for him 
for Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. He is not a priest. He is not a prophet. He's a secular governor, but God has a purpose for him. He's, uh, he's, uh, what God is going to do is he's going to shake the heavens and the earth, overturn royal thrones. Remember, Zerubbabel is a governor of a, uh, a backwater province of an exiled people brought back. I mean, this is not, not a great honor, really. But he says, the kings I'm going to overthrow, the thrones I'm going to shatter, the power of the foreign kingdoms, the chariots, the drivers, the horses, the riders, they're all going to fall. And on that day, I'm going to take you, you little governor. I'm going to take you. I'll make you like my signet ring, a very significant thing in scripture, choosing, being chosen. I have chosen you. I'd like all of you today, if you can, for the next little while, to think of yourself as a Zerubbabel. Consider what God is saying to Zerubbabel and apply it. Let's apply it to ourselves here today. And that, that, whether, whether you're here for the very first time ever, or this is your thousandth time, or whether you're 12 or 14 or 16 or whatever age you are, let me appeal to you to apply these thoughts to yourself and see what, what sticks and what lands. So three areas of flaws. The first, Zerubbabel has inherited flaws. Uh, it's like God is saying to him, I love you and I have vision for you despite your inherited flaws. How is he someone with inherited flaws? It's because he is the son of Shealtiel. Do you remember going back there? It says, uh, where does it say Shealtiel? Near the end. I'll take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Why is that important? Well, because Shealtiel was the son of the last king of Israel before the exile. In other words, Zerubbabel is directly descendant, descended from the person who was the last person to be the king of Israel in Israel. He was the one who lost the throne. He was the one in charge when they were taken into exile. He was the one on whom judgment of God fell to say, you are not reforming my kingdom. You're not purifying my people. You're not taking your responsibilities my seriously. Therefore, what I've prophesied for quite some time now is going to happen in your lifetime. And he and his family were taken into exile. That's your granddad. He lost the kingdom of Israel. The temple was destroyed. The city was destroyed. The, king, the kings of Israel ended. That's your granddad. Something you're not going to be terribly proud of. You talk about my, your family. Uh, I've got things in my family I'm proud of. I'm proud of my mom, proud of my dad. Imagine if my granddad was, was the dad, was the one who lost a whole kingdom. I think I might not mention that in conversation. <laughs> what about your granddad? Oh, you know, I don't know. It's a long time ago. Uh, don't remember. That's your granddad. I'll, we'll read the whole passage here. You can look at it, look it up later. I know it's small text anyway. Second Kings 24 records this happening to Zerubbabel's granddad. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he takes Jehoiakim, that's the king, uh, the third line down there, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, nobles, officials, they all surrendered to him. And he takes all the treasure from the temple. He cuts up the gold articles that Solomon had made. He carries it all, uh, all of Jerusalem into exile, the officers, the fighting men, skilled workers, artisans, 10,000 uh, 10, people. Only the poorest of the land were left. We think our recession's bad. That's what happened. He's deported. And he, he picked some guy called Mataniah to, uh, to be king in his place, but he wasn't really king. That's your granddad. That happened in 597 BC. We're talking here about 520 uh, 5 to 530 uh, BC after uh, that period. You know, we're all somebody's son or daughter here today. 
and we have inherited some flaws from our family upbringing. Is that fair? Our family upbringing uh, impacts us for good and sometimes not for so good. I read a story recently, a true, true story, um, which I'll share with more, more with you another time, had a deep impact on me recently. I've been reading a book by Dan Walker, the uh, journalist and broadcaster, who's a Christian. And there's a, a book about, I think it's called Remarkable People. And it's a phenomenal book about people he's encountered in his broadcasting career. And one of the people he encountered was somebody who spent 20 years on his own every Christmas day. He was all alone for 20 years. And it's a story which is, I'll tell another time. But one of the reasons this chap was on his own for 20 years is because his father told him, growing up, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. And every time he made a mistake, that's what idiots do. Therefore, you are an idiot. 16 years, his father was saying that to him until he left home. And that affected him. Our background affects us and makes us believe sometimes that we are flawed fatally rather than we are damaged, but those things can be useful for God and, and they can be healed. I don't have a lot to say about this right now, but what I'm going to ask us to do is to think about and to be honest with ourselves about some of those flaws that we have inherited. I'm not going to tell you in public on Facebook Live what I think the flaws were of my mum and dad uh, in their upbringing of, of me. Uh, but those of you who've known me quite a while will know I have shared some stories and, and I'm aware of at least some of those things that are, were not so helpful. And I don't blame my mum and dad, really, because no parents are going to get it all right. But it's important for me to know how my upbringing influenced me in not such a helpful way. And to recognize that even though my parents weren't perfect, that does not mean those flaws can't be a channel for God to work. I need other people in my life. I will share one thing. Maybe I'll share... <coughs> Shall I share? No, I won't. I won't share that. But I, I, I am aware that some of my background and upbringing has had an impact on the way that I treat other people. And I find, I find forming deep friendships challenging. Let's, say, let's just put it that way. And part of that is me. Part of that is the way I was brought up. I've got to recognize that. I've got to then allow God to bring people into my life that can help me with that. I need to go seek those people. I need to value those friends. What are your flaws that you're aware of? Do they hold you back from trusting God that he loves you and that he has a vision for you? I hope not. So we have inherited flaws, I would say. And then we have what you might call circumstantial flaws. Zerubbabel not only was uh, the grandson of somebody who himself was, could be regarded as a failure, but he also had circumstantial flaws in his life. And God says, I love you and have vision for you, despite your circumstantial flaws. And what does that mean? Well, Zerubbabel's name is not an Israelite name. It is a Babylonian name. That's the name of the people who took Israel into exile. He was born in exile, as far as we're aware. I'm sure that's true. And he has a Babylonian name. And his name, Zerubbabel, literally means a descendant of Babel. What do we know about Babel? What do we know about Babel? Pagan worship. Pagan worship. What else? The Tower of Babel. Okay. Tower of Babel. What happened to the Tower of Babel? Everybody was scattered. Trying to reach the heavens. Trying to reach the heavens. 
Okay, it's, it's, it's the very pinnacle of pride, because what did God say they were trying to do? Become like God. In other words, take control of their destiny without acknowledging God. And it's called Babel because the word means confusion. And he confused the peoples to protect them from themselves. So this is God's judgment on Babel. And then Babel is also the background of Babylon, right? It's the same word. So Babylon, Babel, it's, it's pagan. It's, it's about God judging. So Zerubbabel, he's, I'm a descendant of Babel, or the proud people who built a tower and God smote and scattered and confused and all these languages across the world because of, because of all that pride. And I'm named after that. <laughs> Fantastic. I love my name. <laughs> and it's interesting that he probably had a Jewish sort of middle name somewhere in there, but it, it doesn't, doesn't, he was probably given that name. You remember Daniel and his companions were given names of their, where they, right, in the exile. So it, that's what happens. So he's not proud of his, in his heritage. He can't be proud of his name. I don't know whether you like your name. I, uh, some of us like our names. And some of us attempted to curse our parents uh, for the name. We just don't like the name, right? And I, I don't know how you feel about yours. Um, and it, it, but imagine if your name meant descendant of Babel or epitome of pride. <laughs> And you've got to write that down on every form, and it's in your passport, and it, you know, read out at your wedding. I marry you, epitome of pride. <laughs> Sometimes our flaws are circumstantial. I mean, he didn't choose his name, and it, maybe it wasn't his parents. We don't really probably wasn't his parents. It was probably given to him as a governor. You're the governor. This is your now. This is now your name. Sometimes just things happen to us in life. We're influenced by the society we live in, by this world, and by the people around us, for good or for bad. What things have come into your life that have caused you to doubt your worth? Things that have happened to you, not done by you, maybe not your parents, maybe not your upbringing, but in your, in your life, you know, at school for the preteens and the teens. Things at school where people, people give you, try to, try to convince you of a view of yourself that isn't healthy. They tell you you're no good, that you won't amount to anything, that you're not good enough. You're not good enough at sports. You're not good enough at arts. You can't read well. Your language isn't very good. Your language skills aren't very good. Your academics aren't good enough, according to who, by the way. There's a lot of things that happen to us, especially kids at school, that train us into thinking we're not good enough and we're not lovable. Don't let those voices drown out the voice of God. Your parents may not have it right. And your friends may not have it right. And the world certainly doesn't have it right. But God knows you. He knows you better than your parents. He knows you better than the world. He knows you better than the friends. He knows you better than teachers or anybody around you. And God says, he still says, I love you and I have vision for you. Circumstantial flaws have an impact. And finally, with Zerubbabel, there are some flaws he created for himself. Some he has to take ownership for. And God says to him, I love you and have vision for you despite your own flaws that are your own fault. <laughs> and that's where we have to take some responsibility, don't we? For, the, for our own mess. Our mess of our lives, our mess of our marriages or our parenting, our mess in work and education, our, the mess we've made of our health, the mess sometimes we even make in church and as a church. We have to take responsibility. 
How does Zerubbabel have responsibility? It's because he's been governor in Jerusalem, brought back from exile for 15 years, and he's done nothing. He has presided over 15 years of failure. You think some of our government leaders are bad. This is someone who had a calling from God with one job, build the temple. Now, Zerubbabel could say, oh, it's the people. But it's never really the people, is it? If you're the leader. Or he could say, oh, it's Joshua, the high priest. He, you know, it's his responsibility. But Zerubbabel is an Israelite. He is a man of God. Who cares what the priests are doing? Who cares what the people are doing? We don't know what he's been doing, except perhaps building his own house like everybody else. 15 years. And when 15 years goes by and you think, yeah, I, I, you know, that's true. I haven't been living up to my calling as a Christian, as a follower of God. I've not been living up to my calling as a, as a spouse, as a parent, as a citizen, as a member of the church. You know, I've been, it's been 15 years. You can get into the thinking that, well, that's it then. I, I obviously I'm no good. I'm, not, I'm no good as a parent. I'm no good as a, as a husband or wife. I'm no good as a friend. I'm no good as a Christian. I'm no good as a, that's it, I, 15 years is too long. Well, take heart. Take heart from Zerubbabel. Because God says to him, well, I know about that, but I have a vision for you. I'm going to make you my signet ring. I'm going to overthrow all these other kings and, and powers, and, but I'm going to choose you. You are the one. God still has vision. <laughs> for the most stuck person in the world. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's somebody else, but maybe it's you. In 1955, some Buddhist monks were moving a monastery, the whole monastery. And they were moving a very large statue. It's about three, four meters tall, very heavy. And in moving it, it, uh, it got a bit damaged, and the covering cracked. And the covering was plaster and glass, had been, it was all over it. And as it got moved, there was a crack, and a monk looked through the crack, and he saw gold. So they started taking off the plaster. They thought it was a clay plaster statue of the Buddha. It turns out, it was solid gold. The head is 99% gold. The, I think the neck is 98% gold. The body is 100% gold. It weighs, oh, I didn't write down the, the weight, but it's obviously very heavy. <laughs> <laughs> it was made somewhere between 1200 and 1300 AD. And they think it got covered in 1767 when there was an attack on the monastery and the monks at the time covered it so that they, they, the attackers wouldn't know that it was made of gold. All the monks in that monastery at the time were killed and no one knew. No one outside the monastery knew what had happened. So it just sat there. And where it sat, <laughs> they actually had, they, because, it, because of the way the monastery was rebuilt, it actually just sat in a tin shack. It wasn't even on display. It was just a, a statue of the Buddha in a shack. So they uncovered it and found this marvelous gold statue worth at today's value about uh, 250 million pounds. You don't know what gold is in there till, until you look through the crack. Our flaws are valuable to God and they're fabulous because it's the way that God gets his spirit out from in us somehow to make an effect in the world. There's, 
something about the way that God works, which is against the way that we might think. Paul said this, we have this treasure. He's talking about the presence of Christ in us, Christ in us, not on us or with us, but in us. This new life that we have, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are like clay, but they're in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God, not from us. We're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We are clay, but there's gold inside. And it's through our cracks, our humanity, our weakness, that God's grace is able to come out. If we were all super strong, we wouldn't need God's help. But it's because we're weak that we trust God and ask him for help, then he helps us to be useful to him, and then he gets the glory. That's how it works. It's all about grace. Let me finish with one last uh, also illustration, if you like. I'll share more next week about our trip, as I said, but one of the most moving things for me on the trip to Italy was whilst in Rome, uh, we had a free day off the tour and Penny and I went to a particular church where it is believed that the apostle Paul is buried. Um, there's a high chance it's correct. I'm not going to say for sure, for sure, but it's an early tradition going back to the 300s AD. And in that uh, church, there's, through that grill, um, there's a, a glimpse you can see of a sarcophagus where a, a, there is a body inside, there's bones inside there, and that's under the altar of this church, and it is said that that is the uh, sarcophagus where Paul's bones were laid uh, to rest. And so apparently uh, he's uh, buried there, and I think there's a good chance that that is true. We know he was executed in Rome, so that may be true. But whether that's true or not, the other thing in this church I really liked is the fact that it's a church dedicated to the memory of the Apostle Paul. But a prominent part of that church is it has another chapel in it. And that chapel is to the left in that photograph. That chapel is dedicated to Stephen. And there was a plaque there with some information remarking upon the fact that although Paul, you remember in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, Paul was there giving approval to Stephen's death when Stephen was martyred. He was killed. Paul was there giving approval. People laid their cloaks at his feet. And then he spent considerable time persecuting the church and trying to imprison and kill many other Christians. Then he had his encounter with God in Acts chapter 9 and became a follower of Jesus Christ, a very flawed follower of Jesus Christ. Talk about a rough background. Someone had been there at the martyrdom and had an influence on the death of the first Christian and then went around imprisoning and trying to kill other Christians. That's a difficult background. That's a flawed person. But he became a Christian after Stephen's death. But now in this church, you have a building dedicated to Paul containing a chapel dedicated to Stephen, because now all of that doesn't matter. They're brothers in Christ. They're going to spend eternity together. And I love the idea that Stephen now would not look down on Paul. And Paul would not, would not think that he was not useful to God. 
God's grace is brought together in a way that's powerful and better than anything the world has to offer. Are we flawed? Oh, yeah, we're very flawed. But I think we're fabulously flawed so that God's grace can shine through us. If you sense you are a Zerubbabel of some kind, then please allow God to infuse you. Allow God to heal you. Allow God to use your flaws. As we come to the time that we take bread and wine, we think about the cross. When we think about the price that Jesus paid for our flaws and the fact that his body is still flawed by that time on the cross. He still bears the, the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. His flawed, wounded body is the one that gives us life. And that's an inspiration to us as we consider our own flaws and how God can use them. Becky's going to come up and pray for us now. 